This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Our first reading this morning is taken from Mark, chapter 6, verses 35 to 44. When it grew late, Jesus' disciples came to him and said, This is a desert place, and the hour is now very late. Send them away so that you may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for them to eat. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Are you now to go and buy 200 denarii's worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And then he said to them, How many loaves have you? Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green fields. So they sat in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed them and broke the loaves, gave them to his disciples and set before the people. He divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were filled. And they, looked, and they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Those who had eaten the loaves numbered five thousand men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning all. The second reading today comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. I, Paul, rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I'm referring to being in need, for I've learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share my distress. You Philippians indeed know that in the early days of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs more than once. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. I've been paid in full and have more than enough. I'm fully satisfied now that I've received from Aphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And in my God will fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The friends who are with me greet you, and the saints greet you, especially those of the emperor's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's good to see you and be seen by you this morning. Uh, Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures, their precepts, promises, directions, and light. In them... May we learn of Christ, grasp grasp his truth, and have grace to follow in his steps. Amen. 
Well, as we've just heard, Paul says to the Philippians, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. Are you content? Is contentment something that would describe your feeling of yourself? A friend of mine once asked her mother, a brilliant academic who had been married to nearly 40 years, for nearly 40 years to her father, who was an unre- unremarkable man in appearance and accomplishments, what was the secret of a successful marriage? Without missing a beat, her mother replied, Lower your expectations. Is that then the secret of a contented life, not just in marriage, but in all things? Lower your expectations. Now, there is something wise in this philosophy, something that our own culture finds it very hard to accept. We have an insatiable hunger for more. We applaud the kind of restless ambition that builds and accumulates and achieves and succeeds. But pursuing more and even having more has not made us more contempt. Earlier this year, Melbourne University's Household Income Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia survey, very sexy title, found out that though Australian households were on average 58% wealthier in real terms since 2001, it's an incredible statistic really, Australians are also significantly less satisfied with our lives. A revealing statistic is that though we are wealthier, we are also much more in debt than we were 20 years ago, which means we are desperately pursuing material things and experiences in the hope that we'll find satisfaction. Whatever we're doing to find contentment, and this is the bottom line, it's not working. There are two thieves that break in and steal our contentment. One is envy and the other is fear of death. Firstly, there's envy. The former president of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt, once said, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. It's the apparent contentment of others that makes us most miserable of all. Life is at its most bitter when we're scrolling past pictures of people enjoying the holidays we aren't having in places we can't get to, with attractive people we'll never know, or having experiences of love we'll never have. And then there's death, or the fear of death, and all that comes with it. How can we be content knowing that death is coming to take it all away, and that it's a matter not of if, but when? As a funeral director once said to me, he said to me, I said to him, business had been slow, and he said to me, don't worry, we're all in the queue. And another one said, well, everyone's a client. What if we haven't done all the things we want to have done by the time our number is up? What then? Why do we have so little control over these things? So should we then lower our expectations? This is what a lot of philosophers and religious figures have taught us down the centuries. The 19th century English philosopher John Stuart Mill, the father of liberalism, once said, I have learned to seek my happiness by limiting my desires rather than attempting to satisfy them. So limit your desires rather than satisfy them. This is very, something very similar to the teaching of the Buddha and of the Stoic philosophers of ancient Greece and Rome that Paul would have been familiar with. The problem is our unreasonable expectation that we will achieve what we desire. 
What we need then is to desire less and to be happy with our lot. In fact, a thought like this is found in the pages of the Bible in the Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes. The teacher, who is the narrator of the book of Ecclesiastes, says in chapter 2, verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. But is that it? Is that all we have to offer? Is that the secret of contentment? Well, there are two troubles here, two problems. The first is that to reign in our desire for things takes a powerful act of will. If someone says that they've mastered the secret of contentment by restraining their desires, then I say that's an oppressive, almost superhuman feat. We are, as human beings, made to want. We are desiring creatures. The issue is not wanting so much as what we want, wanting the wrong things. Secondly, the second problem is that actually there's a form of contentment that is misplaced, that is a giving up on the promise of all that is good in this world. On the one hand, we can never be satisfied, we never have enough, but on the other, we can be too easily satisfied. We can too readily be bought off with a full stomach and a roof over our heads and a quiet place in a nice cul-de-sac in a beautiful suburb, a leafy suburb. We can be too easily satisfied with these things and accept then a vision of life which is far too narrow. There are genuinely good and worthy things that we should desire. There are things that are not occurring that we should want. We should desire that they come to pass. We should not be content without some things. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, of those who are poor in spirit because they understand their own need, of those who are persecuted. There are those who know that the world and they themselves are not right. This is a right dissatisfaction, a godly discontentment, we might say. So what is the secret of Paul's remarkable contentment, which he reveals in these verses at the end of the book of Philippians? It's worth us remembering that throughout this letter, written from his prison cell, Paul has spoken about his longings. He's been open about them. You remember back in the opening chapter, he's longed for the Philippians with the affections of Christ, literally the bowels of Christ Jesus, he reveals his concern for them throughout the letter. He expresses a desire to die and be with Christ. He says in verse 14 of this chapter, chapter 4, that he was genuinely distressed. And in these last verses, Paul wants to thank the Philippians because they've sent along with Epaphroditus a generous gift of support. But you might have noticed there's a sort of awkwardness in the way he goes about thanking them. He doesn't just say, thanks guys. Really appreciated that gift, just what I needed, just what the doctor ordered. Paul says something more nuanced and complicated. Their gift had caused him to rejoice, he says in verse 10, because he can now see their concern for him. He loves that. But what he's keen to show is that he wasn't expecting or depending upon their gift. That's what he says in verse 11. Now, why is this? Well, the first reason is that he wants to assure the Philippians that he has learned to be content in all circumstances. 
If the gift hadn't come, Paul still would have been content. Now, of all people in the world, Paul had had the chance to test out this contentment. For sure, he's had plenty and he's had nothing. He's been hungry and he's been full in the tummy. His experience of life has, as we've known, been extraordinarily up and down. But in all of these seasons, he's learnt the secret of being content. Now, what is it? Is Paul a a Zen master of self-discipline? Or is he just lowering his expectations? No. The secret is what we see in verse 13. What does he say there? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is one of the most misused verses, irritatingly misused verses in the Bible. It's been used almost to say, I can do superhuman things because I'm a Christian, uh, as if it's a verse for movie stars and Olympic athletes. But the context here is not achievement, but endurance. The context here is not, I'm really strong, but I'm not really strong. It's Christ who strengthens me. Paul can endure deprivation, not because he has inner strength, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ who strengthens him. And it's not because he's switched off his longings. Rather, it's because he's been able to direct his longings upwards and forwards to Jesus Christ. He is content because he knows, as he says in verse 19, that God will satisfy his every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He does not have everything right now. He is hungry. He's in need. He's been staring at the four walls of his prison cell for however many years. But knowing that the gracious and generous God will supply every need enables him to endure going without and to have contentment at the same time. He is content but not in denial because he knows that God has got it in hand. Now we know that we can endure great difficulty as human beings if we know that it's not forever and if we know there's a point to it. The Bible often compares the pains and losses of this life to the pains of childbirth. Now, childbirth is, so I'm told, truly awful, but it is a temporary agony with a point to it. This makes it a very different experience to a pain that seems to have no end and no point. Remember, Paul could be forgiven for thinking that his pain and deprivation has no end and no point. He's in prison with no end in sight, no trial date, no promise of release, and his plans are in chaos if not in ruins. And yet he is content. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, he sees to a bigger horizon. He knows that his hunger and his imprisonment and his loneliness are only for a time. And that throughout all of this, he's been transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Paul's hope then is the antidote to the fear of death problem that makes our contentment so difficult. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has given him hope even when he cannot, humanly speaking, see to the end or understand the point of his suffering. Well, that's the first part of the secret of contentment. But there's a second part, which you see in verses 15 to 20, which is the triangle, which I call the triangle of blessing. 
the second part of the secret of contentment. And it has to do with this gift that the Philippians have given him. Remember, Epaphroditus, who got sick when he was with Paul and had to be sent back, had brought a, a material gift of some kind to Paul. We don't exactly know what it was. But the Philippians were, once again, exceptional amongst their churches in their generosity towards Paul. They'd sent Paul help more than once, and he used them as a model for the other churches when he was raising money for the churches in Jerusalem. But Paul's got an interesting twist on this. He's grateful for the gift, but he's bending over backwards to make sure that he's not seen as pleading for more help or manipulating them for cash in, in any way. That's why he says in verse 17 something really, really strange, something quite offbeat. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. That is to say, I'm not like some televangelist trying to gouge you for money. But I do like the fact that when you give to me, you are doing something that pleases God. And so I accept the gift and allow you to minister to me because the thing I really want is the profit that accumulates to your account, as it were. My payment is that in accepting your gift, you have pleased God. I didn't send you some kind of invoice for my services, but I have been paid in full, so to speak, when Epaphroditus turned up, because I can now see that you are being rewarded by God and you have now pleased God. My full satisfaction lies in the way the giving of the gift has blessed the Philippians. There's a couple of things for us to notice here. First, notice how Paul, even though he's content, allows the Philippians to minister to him and so be blessed. And this is something we could allow other people to do as well. Now, we have this cultural habit, it's quite sweet, of not wanting to be a burden to one another. And that's quite a good default position, not to be a burden to other people. It comes without a sort of embarrassment sometimes if people serve us. And maybe that's because we don't like the thought that we are dependent on others or that we've made ourselves vulnerable to others. But you are serving your brothers and sisters by allowing them to serve you. Just as Paul allowed the Philippians to serve him. You are allowing them to receive a blessing by allowing them to serve you. Now, I've noticed some of this dynamic during the time of lockdown. I've had plenty of people say, I'd love to help, I'm free to help, what can I do? But I've had very few people say, please help me, I really need help. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when I asked if I could pray for people. People said, oh, other people's prayers are more important than mine. As if, I mean, again, there's something sweet and right about that, but it's as if we don't want our needs to be known. I don't want to be dependent on God in some way. What we actually need is more people who are happy to accept generosity, more people who let us know that they need our help so that we as givers can be blessed. When we allow others to serve us, we give them a chance to please the Father and go deeper in their relationship with God. If you want your brothers and sisters to be blessed, allow them to serve you. Make yourself a little bit vulnerable, perhaps, and allow them to serve you. And secondly, Paul reminds the Philippians 
that just as they have supplied Paul's needs, so God will satisfy every need of theirs from his rich storehouse of blessings. They need not be worried in their generosity that they will somehow lose out, but rather God will continue to shower blessings upon them. Now, what does all this show? One of the ways in which God supplies all our needs is through the mutual generosity and concern of the people of God. It's a triangle of blessing. Paul is blessed because they bless him and so are blessed by God. Paul is content because they have had a chance to please God in supplying Paul's needs. And so he reminds them that the God who is rich in glory will satisfy their every need in Christ Jesus. God is pleased because the Philippians gave sacrificially to Paul and so will satisfy them as they hope in him. Can you see that triangle, the triangle of blessing? It's in operation amongst us here at St. Mark's too, as it was between the Philippians, God and Paul. One of the ways God has designed our community is so that we can supply each other's needs and therefore experience God's blessing. It's through the mutuality of giving and receiving that we can find not just contentment, but an overflow of blessing. It's funny, you know, the, 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 peop- the people for whom church works best are those who not only come ready to give, but who also come open to the possibility of receiving. Humble in that they let others minister to them so that others may have the blessing of serving you. As we give to one another, we give to God and God gives to us. And you know, being part of this triangle leads to deep contentment because our focus is less upon what we lack and what the other sometimes has and more on what I can give to the other person, what they lack and how I can supply their needs. This triangle of generosity and kindness are an answer to our envy problem. We've got a response to our death problem, a response to our envy problem. Well, so then, you may be asking, how can I be content? How can I be content? Well, firstly, change your expectations. Not lower them, but change your expectations. Secondly, stop buying so much stuff. And thirdly, be part of the triangle of blessing. So firstly, don't lower but change your expectations. If you expect to live here and now without suffering, pain, financial stress, loneliness, grief or disease, then Christianity isn't for you. If you follow a version, you hear a version of Christianity which says that you should expect to live without pain, suffering, financial stress, loneliness, grief or disease, then run as fast as you can away from it, for that is no Christianity. It's certainly not the Christianity of Paul or of Jesus. If you expect to live without these things, to be honest, reality isn't for you. You will always be disappointed. We live in a sin-scarred and broken world. But it's not that we should lower our expectations. It's that our expectations are reframed by knowing Christ. Our expectations are framed by the promise of the one who raised Jesus from the dead. That what we experience now is temporary. That he is working in the world to renew and redeem it. 
that the future is governed by a generous God who has a plan for its restoration, who will meet our needs, that there will be an end to all mourning and pain, that there will be healing and justice and an end to hunger. And with that promise, we can find deep contentment even as we ache and weep. We can be content knowing that these are light and momentary afflictions that will pass away. And with this promise in mind, we can maintain our godly rage at injustice, at the way things aren't as they should be, our rage against the the, the, the defiance of the world of God, against God, our rage against our own sin. We can maintain our godly dissatisfaction knowing that God has got it in hand. So that's our first path to contentment. Change your expectations. Secondly, stop buying so much stuff. We know that contentment is not found in greater wealth or success or in material things. Everyone now knows that. All the social scientists are telling that and the psychologists. Extravagant living is not what Christians are on about. We need to be less attached to the things we own and more attached to the things of heaven. After all, we are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where our identity lies. Our future and destiny lies. That's where our home is. And so it's worth us taking stock. When do I buy something? Not because I need it, but because I think owning it will give me that comforting buzz. Most of us have more shirts and suits and dresses and certainly more shoes than we can wear. Open that wardrobe and see what's in it. We have more books than we can read. Perhaps we even have more bedrooms in which we can sleep, more properties we can live in, more cars than we can drive. I challenge us all to sit down with our bank statements today and ask, is what I'm spending my money on a reflection of my contentment in Christ? Or is it a reflection of my desire to seek my seeking contentment in other things? Is it actually a sign of my discontent? And I challenge you to think about those things, those things you own, those things you invest in, and ask, how attached am I to them? What do I do with them? What do they actually mean to me? Why am I perhaps in so much debt? Why, I think this is a common feeling, even though I'm earning well above the average income, do I feel so poor all the time? And you know, this will be a real point of difference for us as Christians compared to our neighbours. If we determine to find contentment in Christ and not in the pleasures of owning things, we will be so beautifully weird that people will stop us and say, what is your secret? How have you found such contentment? What a sign of God's grace that would be. What a, what a witness and what a testimony to the grace of God and the good news of Jesus Christ that would be in our community of all places. Thirdly, so remember, change your expectations or reframe them. Secondly, stop buying so much stuff. Thirdly, be part of the triangle of blessing. Our life together in God, a life that in some ways we've, 
really missed out on these last few months, gives us opportunities to give and receive generous blessings to and from one another. We find fulfilment and joy in caring for the needs of others and in allowing others to care for us. It's absorbing to be in this triangle of blessing because God blesses us in giving and receiving. I dare you to try it. Be open about your needs and be attentive to the needs of others. Is there someone among us who is lonely, someone who is in crushing debt or in financial trouble, someone who is feeling the deep wounds of shame, someone who is despairing, someone who is sick, perhaps persistently sick or desperately sick? What could you be for that person? What could you be for them? What needs of theirs could you seek to meet? I pray that we will be, in Christ, a remarkable fellowship of generous and contented people who know what it is to give and to receive, who share with one another our material and personal needs and who look with keen eyes to the needs of one another and so receive the blessing of our generous Father. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.